That's the place you start at. The second that you start becoming more obsessed with the industry than you do your own talent and your own creative, you've lost it. You need to realize as the artist that you have something to provide, that your voice and your message is important. And if you don't feel like you can walk into the room and you're the most important person in that room, then you are not an artist. You are just another musician making music that will not connect. What is up? Welcome back to Where Are All My Friends. This week, we sit down with Josh Terry. Josh is a pretty impressive dude. He manages Mayday Parade amongst a bunch of other artists. He is a co-founder and owner of the Sad Summer Music Festival and owns his own management company in Nashville called Workshop Management. The reason, though, that I'm so excited about this episode is his story has actually already been told. He was on Noise Creators, a podcast that I like a lot, and he really got into his early days already. So with this one, we were able to just really dive in and focus on current life, the challenges of starting a music festival. We get into a ton of advice for artists and young people just trying to get into the music industry. And he's just so well-spoken, so good at giving real advice, real steps, things that you can do. And I've been having a lot of fun with the podcast and like getting out as much valuable information like that as possible. So I really think you're going to like this one. If you do, you know what I ask. Just share it, tell your friends, rate it on iTunes, all that good stuff, social media. Most importantly, just enjoy it. I really love this one. I think you will too. Here we go. Here we are, where are all my friends, sitting down with Josh Terry. And I'm excited about this one because you don't live here. You don't I live don't. in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So I very much value the times where I can get someone like yourself in person. So first off, thank you for taking the time. It genuinely means a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah this will be cool. So what I like to do, what I like to start the podcast with is just if anybody doesn't know who you are, yep. what you do, like kind of just that brief elevator pitch or that explanation of who you are and what you do. Totally. Um, my name is Josh Terry. I run Workshop Management, which is a boutique management company in Nashville. Um, some of my clients currently are Mayday Parade, Four Year Strong, I the Mighty, Ashlyn Lowen, and Chad Copeland, who's a producer that does a lot of Sufjan Stevens records. Oh, shit. Um, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. How do you say it? Sufjan Stevens. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if I say that wrong, I'll get in trouble. Um, but uh, so I, I do them. And, and in my past, I've also worked on the management teams for The Fray and Matt Carney and Liz Fair and Motion City Soundtrack and a bunch of others. So I've done this for about 16 years. And then I'm also a partner in the Sad Summer Festival that started this last year. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's me. It's, uh, that's a whole lot of things in a, in a quick bit there. Cool. Um, no, that's awesome. And you're here in LA, uh, you're going to speak at a class that Kevin Lyman teaches. Yep. That's really exciting. Uh, Mayday Parade plays tomorrow, tomorrow right? Tomorrow night. Yep. So, at the Roxy. So yeah. You're here for a reason. That's yep. cool. <laughs> that's awesome. So another thing that I do want to say is your story has been told very well on mm -hmm. another podcast that I'm actually a huge fan of. Um, but a mutual friend, Jesse Cannon has a podcast called noise creators. Yep. And if you're interested in hearing the Josh Terry story fully, it's there. So I don't want to be redundant. I don't want to take your time and tell like the same podcast. Yep. Normally the format of this show is a lot of like the early days, the come up story and that story. But I'm actually kind of excited that you've told it because I think that you have a lot of wisdom, perspective, insight past just telling your story. 
So I'm more excited. Like, obviously, we'll go through some different parts yep. and all that. But I'm excited to kind of get more into just the gems of like some advice and some wisdom and not tell the same story because it was told so well already. Totally. Well, that's very kind. I hope I can live up to that. We'll see, we'll see where it goes. Yeah. For the listener, uh, we've really just hyped this up. So <laughs> It's all downhill from here. Yeah, that's right. I'm so, so sorry. Um, no. So what I was interested in is in your story, I, I do think that there's some very interesting points in your early days. Mm -hmm. uh, to my understanding, you took the path of college like you grew up, went to college and didn't really play in bands or anything like that in the beginning, uh, right? Yeah, I have no musical. I played piano for a week and a half until I quit to play basketball and not tell my mom. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I can't play. I can't sing. I have no interest in any of that whatsoever. Yeah. Right, which I relate to a lot. I'm very similar. And I love it because I always was intrigued by music, but totally. didn't think I had a place in it. Yep. But it's cool to talk to somebody else who has that and totally. you've proven success there. So mm -hmm. that's cool. Um, tell me, though, in your story and jump in, yeah. navigate it wherever you need to. I was listening to that other podcast and I find it extremely interesting that what was it a week into college? Yeah, a week. You were chasing one major. Yep pivoted and pretty quickly things changed and like you had a real view of a different side of what you were going to do. Yeah. Tell me about that. I have a very non-traditional got into music story. I went to college to be a journalist. I was going to be a newspaper editorialist, someone that would write op-ed pieces um, about just anything. Um, and I did that because in high school, I was very big in my high school newspaper. I had won a bunch of scholastic awards. That was something that was very I had found I had found words to be a way that I could communicate in ways that I couldn't because I was a very shy kid. Oh, okay. Um, and so I went to college specifically to a college that had a top-rated journal print journalism program. And then I started taking classes, and probably a weekend I was like, I there is nothing I want to do less than this anymore. And it literally transitioned everything because before journalism and writing had been the only thing that I had found that was a skill set for me. Um, so immediately I'm like, oh, crap, I'm in school. I don't know what I want to major in. What do I do? And I think a lot of kids have that issue when they go to school. They're not quite sure where they want to go. But I was so determined that this was going to be me, yeah. that the pivot was very real and quick. And it was just like all the things I could just see like uh, the print journalism is dying are there going to be jobs? Am I going to have to have 45 jobs before I retire? Is there going to be money for me? Is this going to turn into a freelance thing? Um, and also just the learning more about how journalism worked bored me. It took away all the creative fun of just being a writer. And so it killed it. So getting that far or like committing to it yep. and then realizing all of that, I'm pretty conservative by nature. Yeah. Like as much as I do know like when to take risks, like it sometimes takes me a lot. What was that feeling at that age making that pivot? Like were you scared? Were you afraid of some amount of pressure? Or like was it just crystal clear? Did you just know? It was clear that I couldn't do this. I okay. couldn't do that anymore. The knowledge of what was next was very uncertain. And I think this is the value of having people around you that see you more than you can see yourself at a time. I had a, I had a very close friend that was two years older than me that went to school there and her name was Erin. And she said, Hey, like, if you don't know what you want to do, like get involved in something on campus, see if there's something that sparks an interest. And that's where it started. She was like, 
what do you like to do? I was like, well, right now I'm just on the computer all day, like downloading stuff on Napster. That's how old I am is Napster was a thing. Um, I remember and, that. Yeah. I, that like, was, yeah. It was, it was, and like, so like, that's all I was doing all day. I was listening to stuff on Napster, going to shows. I'm not a drinker. I'm not a partier in that sense. So that, that was kind of my early college life. She's like, well, there is a student activities board that books colleges, like books concerts and lectures and comedians and stuff. You should maybe just go and see what they have. So I, I remember I went into this office that was next to the cafeteria and I was like, Hey, like I heard you guys do stuff on campus. And I met this guy named Mike Duncan, who was the advisor of the thing. He's like, yeah, he's like, we have, we do all this stuff. He's like, what are you interested in? I was like, I don't know. I was like, I listened to a lot of music and stuff. He's like, great. We have a concert board. I was like, do you have a schedule of like what y'all have coming up? Cause I don't see anything about this. And he handed me the schedule and I was like, this is awful. And like, I was like, why would anyone go to it? It was like all like jugglers and like crappy acoustic acts and like, just like, like what you would book at like a birthday party. Totally. <laughs> but for college kids. And I was just like, I was like, bro, this is lame. I was like, he's like, well, he's like, if you think it's so lame, why don't you get involved and change it? And I was all like, right. and so I think that kind of like struck me a little bit. I was like, okay, I will. And so I joined the, like, I joined the concert board where there was like three other people um, and we did one show and it was so poor that the person putting on the show quit. Her boyfriend was the other person on the staff. He quit and her best friend was the other person on the staff. They quit. And so then the smart ass kid that thought he thought everything sucked had to be in charge of everything. Now they're like, it's yours. And so I went from just like a novice interest in this to really quickly being like, okay, now I've got to run this at least for a semester. And when I started getting involved in it, it became very fascinating to me. The behind okay. the scenes aspect was very fascinating. Because that, like, that's interesting. So where you had enough confidence to say, print journalism is not it. Yep. You didn't really know on this, but there was enough of a fascination where you were like down to take on the challenge. It was different. Yeah. It's yeah. like, it allowed me to have some of the leadership skills that I had had in the journalism department, being an editor, um, running people around, telling them to do this, this, and this but it was such a different world. Like I was a kid from a small town. Nobody in my family really listened to music. Going to concerts was not a thing. And then to do this thing where you literally are setting everything up from the parking cones to the stage, to moving the amps around, to making sure the right kind of tortilla chips are bought. Like, and then you see this person that comes in as a normal person yeah. and then they go on stage and they become something bigger and you see how the crowd reacts to it. And there's just something that was very, alive and energetic and because i was so into napster and discovering bands at that stage it became like a natural fit and i don't know why but i was very good at it really quick it was one of those things that just fell in and it, all the things that i was unsure of before in in the journalism realm just became very natural in yeah. this and i felt very confident and comfortable and it gave me a sense of purpose and identity that I didn't, that most kids in college don't have early on. And so that's why it's a weird story because it starts in a very like, it shouldn't have gone here place. Yeah. And then instead of having those years of like doubt and not know, like, yeah, it pivoted me into a place that I was naturally more inclined in at that point. Yeah. And it just happened. I feel like that's a really relatable thing though, right? Yeah. Like, I certainly struggled with that. And like, I remember, like, you kind of do, you go through the motions of what life is. But then whatever that is, it's so important, right? Totally. I think we're all kind of chasing that feeling. Yep. 
But when you find it, like there's just kind of that inkling of it clicks and you do not know what it is and what happens next. But like, it's so cool. Like that was that for you. That was it. That was it for me. Yeah. There was another thing and and I'm not going to remember the company name. I'm sure you'll have it, but like, I'm kind of curious, like what happens next, right? Cause I'm sure you're, you found artists on Napster, you're putting mm-hmm. things together, it's clicking. I'm yep. sure you don't know what you're doing, but you're excited enough to figure it out. Yep. You talked about finding a company that was making like mixed, like mixed CDs. Yeah, where? So um, through downloading Napster, I had a couple of bands that I liked in high school and I was trying to discover what they were doing now. And one of them had a solo project. So I Googled his name and or I put in his name Napster. We didn't have Google back then. Right. Did Napster, I put his name and then all these songs came up. But one thing kept being repeated on different bands that I liked is there's these things called the Aware compilations, which were basically like these mixtapes of like unsigned bands. But then the next year, all of them were had record deals. And so it was like, wait a second, like who are these people putting out these mixtapes that like all the bands that 19 year old me likes in college and then i i would i would enter in the name of the company and then it would populate it was this company in chicago that was literally putting out these compilations and had a couple of bands they were signing but like it was all stuff that like none of my friends knew about yeah and i would hear it and be like this is exactly what i like and so then it became that like fascination of i would download everything of theirs for free and then i would feel guilty and then i would go buy a physical copy of it because i was like these i don't want them to go out of business and stuff like that and yeah and just kind of had that process but i was very fascinated with the types of bands they were signing how those bands were breaking on a college level on a grassroots level and as i was getting involved in the concert board and having internships this company felt like it had its pulse on something yeah and it felt like it was doing it in a way that like i admired and it was the way that these tiny bands that nobody else knew five months later when all my friends were like, you have to hear this. I was like, I already heard it. And they're like, how the hell did you hear that? It was like, Oh, I got the aware compilation. Like, what is that? Are there and, any artists from that that like I would know? Like uh, if you'd say like a yeah, small so one. Yeah, so John Mayer got his break there. Oh, Hoodie and the Blowfish K. got their break there. Any band from the nineties or early two thousands, that was like hot AC stuff. You would recognize that five for fighting train, Matt Carney, like all these bands before they got deals and stuff were just like regionally touring bands that my old boss, Greg, like found a song that he liked, put it on the compilation. And then all these major labels are like, this is a free A&R tool. Yeah. And then they would notice like, wait a second, these bands actually have regional and local followings. They can sell 500 tickets in their hometown. I bet if we amp this up and put it on radio or try this, something more could happen and it just created this network of really good college demo bands yeah. that were about to bubble up in a time before being a singer songwriter or a college band was popular. They were doing that a couple years before. And then when the John Mayer thing really hit and took off, that was it. they were at the charge of it. And they signed John when nobody else would sign him. You so know? then you start noticing this, but then you get to a point where there is some involvement, right? Yeah. So where does Josh go from like running the college concerts, all of that, yep. finding these aware comps? Like what happens next? I I did about 14 internships in college. Yeah. And then I also aware had this thing called this, the wear rep program, which was a street team. And so they would send me boxes of like sampler CDs, stickers, posters to put up when these bands were coming around town. And I would just flood the campus. I would go sell merch for these bands because they were also small. They didn't have, and I would get to know the bands, 
get to understand their system. I used to so drive you were in, in like, like they would call me and say, there's a show in Alabama. Yeah. Can you go and skip class? And I would drive to Alabama. They would pay for my gas money. They wouldn't pay me anything. And I would go to the campus that day, put up the posters, um, pass out samplers all afternoon, go to the show, sell t-shirts. They'd give me a shirt. I'd have dinner with the band, hang out with the band. And then I would drive back in time to go to class the next morning. Also while doing multi, like two or three internships per term. So I was just fully in, like, as soon as I found out this is something I could do, I didn't know anybody that knew how to do it. So I would literally look in CD liners and say, does anyone have the same area code as me? And I would call them and say, can I, can I come and like sweep your floors or mark up posters or do anything? And they're all like, yeah, idiot, come on by. Like no one's doing this. So, and so I got Question. to know everyone in Southeast because of that. Question with that. Did you, cause I hear that now and I'm like, that's brilliant. Like that's such a good like hustle to like get connected. Did you have like a master plan no. in doing that? Or no. was it just pat, like what it was, was driving? Just, it was, I want to do this and I don't know anyone that does this. I don't know what any of these jobs are. I don't know what a manager is. I don't know what an agent is. I don't, I know what a record label is, yeah. but I don't know what they do. So I'm just going to meet as many people that are in the vicinity of me that do something like this, whether it's locally, regionally, nationally, and I'm just going to see if I can learn from them. It was kind of like taking co college classes in these grimy basements and stuff and learning from these people that were either really early on in their career, about to make their biggest strides, drug dealers, like all kinds of people. And you just saying like, just teach me, teach me, even if it's you yelling at me that I did it wrong, teach me how to do this so that in four years, someone may give me some money, but I don't care about that now. I just... I'm so invested. I'd rather do this than go to school. But yeah. if I drop out of school, my parents are going to kill me. So like, teach me this. And luckily I think because I was literally this, there was no music business program in my school. Like I was the only person in South Carolina vaguely interested in the music. business. So I learned from all these people that had either done this when Hootie and the Blowfish was big and they were on their team. And then the South didn't have these bands that got, so like then it became regional bands and local bands. And I just learned how to build a band from a local level to a regional level to a level where you get label interest to hopefully get this. Yeah. And I was just very blessed in a sense that I got to work with people at different areas that connected me to this person. So I never, I never made a resume. I don't even know how you'd start putting, I, I've just always fell into a job based off of a relationship with somebody else who said, yeah, trust this kid. He's good. But that started with just like an obsession for learning. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I that literally, the that. first internship I ever had, I went to a record store in my college town after I'd been through Napster. I was like, somebody must be working with these bands that play these college clubs every three months. And I went and bought a CD. I went, bought five CDs, all of regional bands that came through. And I looked in the liner notes and I noticed someone on there had the same area code that I grew up in. And that blew my mind because I thought all these people were in New York. Right. And I called this guy and he was so stressed out and busy. And he's like, what do you want? I was like, I just want to come work for you. He's like, I have no money. I'm not, I was like, no, 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 I don't want any money. I just want to see what happens. And the first time I did an internship with him, it was, it was, it was like watching the movie Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Things were going crazy. Oh, people were yelling. Just, people were changing their tone of voice with different calls that came in. And it was something unlike anything I'd ever been around. I was like, I don't know what these people do, but I want to do this. Okay. So yeah. like that thirst for that knowledge, then connecting. So what was that company and how long were you there? Or like what was that? That was a small company called Mountain Entertainment. Okay. Um, 
they were known, they would sign bands regionally and they would get them deals. So okay, a lot of bands you're not familiar with, but they had a band that I was fans of in high school called Albert Hill that signed a Republic. Mm -hmm. um, they had signed a band called the Josh Joplin Group. Their biggest claim to fame is there's this country guy that's kind of like a Jimmy Buffett thing now named Corey Smith. Mm -hmm. And Marty, who was the guy that owned it, was the guy that discovered him and turned him into a multi-million dollar touring act. Um, just but, a very young manager. probably my age now, but when I was there seemed like a much older guy yeah, yeah. that was just like trying to just make a living at it and I was actually, barely getting by. Yeah. I like that more that it wasn't anything massive, but mm -hmm. just for you going in and seeing it, even at that level, yeah. you were like, Oh, well, my. it made it feel like it was something I could do. It was yeah. a guy in my hometown doing this with bands that I was familiar with in college that I liked. Yeah. And he was making, he had, he was making enough living to have four employees. Yeah. Um, he was working above a gun store. It was like this tiny little room in front of a gun store, but it was just so much like energy and like bands calling him for advice and him sifting through it, talking to club owners and yelling at one club owner and then putting him on home, talking to like some sorority chair and being like, yes, sweetheart, we'll do this deal for you. And like, it was just like, so fascinating how they were working so quickly, yeah. but getting so much done. Yeah. And then I could see like this band's playing here. They get paid this much. And uh, I could just literally see everything happening in front of me. So it fascinated me. All that curiosity you had, all of those things, like this was like a real window or door into it where you could like start to see how it worked. And that 100%. was probably just insane to you. What, um, with aware, you ended up having some involvement, right? Yeah. So when does that happen? I interned there my junior year and we just moved there for free. That was a crazy experience. Um, and then they, I toured for a little bit and they hired me after that to, to work for them. And that was awesome. So, yeah. Okay. Because something that we were talking about before the podcast started, which I think we both, uh, respect a lot or you know it's something that's important is like mentorship yeah where do you feel like you kind of first like was it i just spaced the name the above the gun store what was that mountain called? entertainment mountain yeah. was it mountain or like where do you feel like you really connected your first like mentor like yeah. where did that really start clicking? so i have an interesting take on mentorship because i think people become fascinated with mentors yeah and they become this like this like unicorn that everybody Please, wants yes. to have yeah 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 I'm a big believer that everything happens in moments. So I don't define a career by the longevity. I define it by the moments you make. I've had mentors in my life ever since I was a kid. And most people have mentors that they don't claim as mentors because it's not as sexy and spicy. Yeah. I had great parents. My parents were good-hearted, hardworking people that cared for others. That was a mentorship. They taught me the right ways. When I was in high school, the teacher that was my journalism teacher instilled in me that I had a voice that should be heard and gave me confidence when I was a shy kid that it, that was a form of mentorship. When I went to college and joined the concert board, Mike Duncan challenging me and then teaching me how to be a leader and how to lead other people instead of just bitch and complain, create a sense of myself that people could buy into and follow. That was a mentorship. My first couple of internships like Marty at Mountain Entertainment literally taught me the music business. He didn't have to. Yeah. He taught me out of just necessity and needing an extra hand he didn't have to pay. He taught me. Jared Wilkins, who I worked with when I first graduated college and just moved into his office and he gave me a closet to work out of and found one of his bands that was going on the road and let me house sit and live there for free so I didn't have to pay money. That was a mentorship because he taught me how to do it in a more professional way in the Southeast than I had seen. Vance McNabb, who I later toured with and, and was a guy that I had managed a band with in college with, 
he was the first guy that I saw at a national level that came from my area. Yeah. He taught me so much. And then when I went to aware, I literally had an entire office full of mentors, Greg Latterman, who started aware and did it for 25 years. He was the guy that discovered train John Mayer five for fighting Matt Carney, Guster, like Hootie and the blowfish, Edwin McCain. He instilled in me what it was like to be independent. Yeah. He, his passion for entrepreneurship bled over. Then I met like Mark Cunningham, who was like one of the managers. He's the manager, still the manager for Brandy Carlisle to this day. Yeah. He's winning millions of Grammys. Now, Mark taught me about culture and bringing up younger people with you so that they're part of it. Steve Smith, who was the head of A&R and also a manager there, taught me about like getting out of my comfort zone and having like strong relationships with your clients yeah. so that in the hard times they believe in you and in the hard times where they're difficult to you, you believe in them. And then really the guy that I consider my biggest mentor in music is this guy, Jason Rio, who was at aware and he was a manager and his claim to fame is he like was the guy that discovered Travis back in the day and Remy zero. But then he went on to be one of the managers of the fray with me, with Matt Carney, with me. Um, he managed Liz fair for a while, Michelle branch. Um, and he was just a very big manager and he taught me how to do it. He taught me all the nuances, all the little nuances that you don't pick up on about being a manager. It's not just about like, having the answers and being strong. It's about like how you deal with your clients, how you deal with pressure filled situations, how you lead a bigger team, how you take a band from making a hundred thousand dollars a year to $7 million a year, how you scale your touring, how you think 10 steps ahead and just being in his face to where he could say, you're an idiot. This is wrong. Don't get ahead of yourself. And also could talk me out of those stress filled times where I was just like doubting myself or like, thinking other people were thinking about me more than they really were. Yeah. He was always the one to ground me. And he's still, he, he's the, he's the president of live nation in Texas now. Oh, wow. And he's still to this day, one of those guys that like, if a situation gets beyond my control where I'm like, I don't know, I call Jason and whatever Jason says, I trust because yeah. he's never led me wrong. He's always been a friend. And so I've just been very lucky that throughout my entire career, I've had different stages of people that have, provided tremendous value to me that have taught me things and have given of themselves and their knowledge to me that they did not have to, to pass it down. And so that's very important to me to continue to do. So this actually blew my mind as you just said this, because I think then that mentorship after hearing all of that, it's not so well, I mean, it is all those people, but it's you. This view that you have is a very self-aware view that I haven't heard anyone explain quite like that, where I think you're right. It is very sexy to be like, this is my mentor or totally. whatever, but you found people all along the way, every single chapter, every single piece, you learned something new that added to the next piece, to the next piece, to the next piece. And I mean, what you said, easily 10 names there that yeah. were all important pieces, so then to me, my intrigue comes back to you to the point of like, did you know in those moments that those were little like mini men or not even mini, but like mentors of chapters and pieces? Like, did it feel like you were I didn't know in the moment that it? it was a chapter. Yeah. I thought it was a thing that would happen forever. <laughs> and I think that's the biggest doubt because I, I think sometimes we go into this thinking like every situation we're in is going to be this game changing thing that is and music business and life in general doesn't work that way. Yeah. But I noticed really quickly who took an interest in me yeah. and who gave me extra time yeah. and, and who invested in me. That's a lot of what this is, is people invest 
if you're a manager, you're investing in a client that you feel has some kind of value that's going to help your career, but also in a coaching way, you feel like you can help them in their decision-making or their growth. Yeah. People do that in general to you and you don't always see it, but anything that is of success for me is a culmination of all the investment that other people have put into me. Yeah. And so it's very important to me that as I have 19 year old kids come and intern and learn the music business from me, if I don't teach them the business the way that it was taught to me, then I have to answer to Marty Winch and I have to answer to Jared Wilkins and I have to answer to Greg Latterman because they invested enough time into me to make the business better for my generation. And if I don't do that for the next generation, I just slap them in the face and that's not fair to all the time and energy they put into me when they could have been putting that into anyone else into making more money for themselves. They took time out of their busy schedule to entrust and teach me a business that would allow me to be able to make money for as long as I want to. They taught me a trade and that's important that you pass that on because then that makes that allows your culture around you to be all solid, successful people because they're doing it from a genuine place of wanting to do it instead of feeling like this is a get rich quick scheme. I absolutely love that. And the question that I have and that I'm hope I like, if I was listening, I know the question that I would ask right now. Yeah. Why did they take the time on you? In, in all of those moments, you had so many people that were in your life. What about you? What, like, what did they see? What do you think they saw? Because you're right. Like all yeah. these people are super busy. I know what it's like. Totally. I, I think it's hard for me to completely see because if I, if I remember myself at that age, I think, man, there were so many things I did wrong. I think they saw something of themselves in me. And I think I was the underdog. I was the kid from a small town in an area that didn't have a music business that was going to work harder than all these kids that were going to Yale. Yeah. And they said, this is the kid that if he gets kicked in the face, he's going to get back up. Yeah. And this is, and also like, I never worked for like this, these massive corporation mogul type of people. I worked for like hardworking entrepreneurs that were trying to get by day after day, but that were doing big shit. And I think they saw something in me that they said, this is someone that we could have in our team. This is someone we could trust. And this is someone that's going to work harder than anybody else and work harder than us. Yeah. And if he screws it up, he's going to feel worse about it than we are. I'd rather have that kid on my team yeah. than the kid that thinks he knows everything about the music business. Yeah. The reason I asked that is just like what you just said there is so powerful and I feel it. And it's like, I think that a lot of the next generation of music is looking for that and looking for those opportunities mm-hmm. to find those people And I think the biggest question is like, okay, cool. I feel that way about myself. How do I get them to notice that? So like what if you could give any piece of advice to anybody listening of like how to be that kid that they see like as the underdog or as the like take a chance on this person. Like in my head, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by your intrigue in music, right? Like you were so obsessed that I think if I saw that in a kid, I'd be like, yo, this kid's obsessed. Totally. Well, and I can say it because I see it in kids all the time. Yeah, please, like, please. You, you shut your mouth and open your ears. That was the first piece of advice I ever got. It was like, if you just shut up and listen, you will learn more in the conversations that don't involve you that will be able to teach you how to do this. And there's still conversations from early on. I remember hearing how people talked on the phone or how they negotiated and sold that I still use to this day that work every freaking time. And so when I look at a kid that I want to have intern for me, I'm looking for the kid that's not going to come in with entitlement. It's not going to claim they were sick when they were really hungover. 
that's going to show up every single day, that's going to stay after hours, that's not going to leave right at five o'clock on the dot, that's not going to show up five minutes late, that is going to ask you questions, even if they are dumb questions. Because I believe there's no such thing as dumb questions. There's plenty of dumb people that ask questions. There's no question that is dumb. And I, I, I think there's something that radiates. And also, those kids, back then I would have thought like, oh, there's a million people doing this. Now, when there are literally millions of music colleges and stuff, there are millions of kids wanting to get in this business. There's 2% that succeed. And those 2% that succeed have that little extra. And the rest of them are doing it because they want to hang out with bands. They want a celebrity life. And when they realize all that crap doesn't really happen, and it's more of like a grind and a job, and also a therapy appointment a lot of the times, it's not sexy for them anymore. But the kid that literally doesn't go out at night and is on his computer all night that answers emails after hours within seconds to help you out that is doing his, his or her best to kind of like make you look good. Those kids always, those are the kids that have interned for me that have gone to do way bigger stuff than I ever will do. Yeah. And it's, that's the thing that becomes inspiring to me is like, yeah, wow, this little kid that came in here at 18 years old that knew yeah. nothing is now a manager at, Q prime or red light or vector and doing huge tours or they're a tour manager or they're a publicist. Like didn't Leslie who has Doug the pug. Work yeah. With you? Leslie interned for me as a kid in, in college, Leslie Mosier. Yeah. One of the smartest interns I ever had. Great soul. She had, she had interned for a guy that was just a scam artist. Oh really? And she came in very guarded and I saw something in Leslie where she was very digitally focused. She had her pulse on all that stuff. But she was just a hardworking, good kid. So much so that I hired her before she graduated college to be my assistant. She was there for a bit. And then the thing with Doug the Pug took off and she went with it. And now she's a millionaire and doing great. And But she's still the same good-hearted young person that cares. But she's doing. she has a voice now and a vehicle yeah. to drive that. And it's inspiring. That's cool. You know? Yeah, that's really cool. I want to keep it moving. And like, I yeah. know we can talk about like all that mentorship. We might even come back to it yeah. closer to the end. Um, I really do want to talk about sad summer. Cause I think that it's something that you're doing right now. And I think it means a lot more than just yeah. being a festival, but just for the sake of the story, tell me very briefly, you go from finding all these mentors, you graduate college. Mm -hmm. Um, the one piece that I did want to talk about, cause I think it's amazing is as much as you are a manager now, yep there was a period of time where you were doing all that, learning all that. And then you actually had a chunk where you were tour managing yeah. and you were on the road. So just tell me really briefly, like that's interesting to me, like yeah. that little time period. I was, so I was, I, had, I was graduating college. I had had a couple of bands that I was working with that got signed and then they got dropped. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I went from a period of having okay money to having no money. And my friend Vance, who I mentioned earlier was a tour manager for John Mayer and he was out with Howie Day who had a single at the time that was as big as Gavin DeGraw. And he was like, do you want to come out this summer and sell t-shirts? Now Vance and my relationship was muddy because I had managed the band with him before and we got fired three days before I graduated college. And I blamed Vance for a lot of it early on when it wasn't fair to him, oh. but I was just cause I was young. So when he called me, I kind of had this attitude like, I am not selling t-shirts. And he right. called me a day later. He's like, you sure? And I was like, yeah, I need the money. Let's do it. So I went, I went on the road. I toured with Howie day for a couple of months um, his tour finished. I thought I was going to be with Howie forever. He went to rehab. Oh, um, and then his backing band was a band that was on Atlantic in the Southeast that I knew. 
and they said, do you want to come out on tour and be a tour manager, modern engineer, merch guy, every other job we can think of, and for half the money? Sure. Did that. I was still managing bands at the time. And so I did that. And then the last day of that tour, I got called by Motion City Soundtrack, who I'd interviewed for two months earlier and was told I wasn't qualified for the job. Incredible. And they said, the guy that we have out as a tour manager has been our stage tech forever. He's having a nervous breakdown because we have him doing too many jobs and he's threatening to quit. So can you just fly to New York tomorrow, jump on this tour, you're gonna get fired in a week because I hate everybody and just make sure he doesn't leave. That's your only job. And I was like, sure, flew to New York. First time I ever worked with a pop punk band. Um, they instantly, like they later told me that like they thought their manager had hired this hillbilly to come work for him and they hated me because of that. But I stayed with that band for a year and a half through their biggest record cycle. The record went gold. They started selling upwards of 3,000 tickets. I can and I was a see. part of all of that. And it was just very like, it would just happened at the right time with the right people. And my skill sets worked for that specific band. Cool. And I think that's what helped it. Was that I Am The Movie? What no, that was Commit This To Memory. Commit This To Memory. Yeah. That, that, it's like a... I'm mixing up. There was one like an orange album cover with buildings. That's I Am the Movie. Yeah. Okay. And then Commit, this was second, was that Mark Hoppus produced it. And it was a tour. They like my first tour with them was this third day on the Fallout Boy Nintendo Fusion tour that had Gym Class and Panic at the Disco and Starting Line and Motion City on it. You were on that tour? I, was, I walked in there three days in, got in trouble for eating catering because we were not supposed to have catering, got a dolly thrown at me by their tour manager. Um, that was a crazy, and I was like, the punk rock is weird, but I went from a tour with Howie Day where it was just like drugs and alcohol all the time to like the worst thing Motion City did was play Nintendo games too late or drink Diet Coke when they weren't supposed to be, when they're supposed to be on a diet. So it was a very different counterculture for me, but touring Dude. was, touring was interesting and it was fun and I was getting opportunities from it and it was allowing me to fund these regional and smaller bands that I was managing at the time. So I could still keep my hand in that but I was meeting all the big level agents. I was doing the big level rooms and I was learning a side of the music business that I never actually considered to be a path for me. And my question was at any point in that, like, did you think, damn, maybe this is it. Maybe this is better than the man management side. Maybe I do this. Like you were yeah. getting good tours. There was a moment that I thought this is where my opportunity is going to be. There was never a moment where I did not want to be a manager. I oh. always looked at touring as like a segue back to management. I was like, if I learn enough about the road, then I'll have experience to know what artists actually go through. And I could be a value add to a management company to where they maybe hire me to be their touring guy or something like that. But I always kept my foot in the like, I'm always going to go back to management eventually. But in the moment, it was hard to see because like while I was touring Motion City, I was getting offers from Gavin DeGraw. I literally had a face-to-face -face with boys like girls and panic of the disco who both were trying to steal me at the same time from motion city. And I said, no, I'm good right now. I like this. And so by the time I got offered to get off the road, I had three offers that were significantly more money than the job at aware that was going to bring me in as a young manager. I didn't even ask about the money at aware. That was my dream was yeah. to go there. And I was like, if I go here now at this age, this sets me up for the rest of my life. Wow. But if I stay on the road, I potentially become one of those crusty old road guys that blows through his money, gets divorced three times, probably has a drug addiction problem. I don't want that life. I want if I'm going to be more mad at myself if I don't take an opportunity to go to the company that inspired me to work in music and to give myself a shot as a manager with resources than I will be if I lose thousands and thousands of dollars that I would made in higher revenue. You were just investing in that future. Yeah. You knew. I knew, I knew I wanted to be a manager 
from that first internship. Every other internship I did, whether it was with festival producers or venues or labels, they were all there, but it, nothing computed, nothing felt like it was me as much as being a manager. Yeah. And I could not let go of that. I still can't let go of that. It's one of those things that like, regardless of how tough it gets, it's the thing that keeps me in it is like, that is what I feel my skill set is. And that is what I actually want my life to be. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, not that I, I don't want to cut it too short, yeah. but it's been touched on. So you had some very good years at Aware, yeah. killed it, eventually went on to make Workshop, which is mm -hmm. your own company yep. where you manage artists. Yep. Cool. Um, again, I'm not shortcutting it. A no, lot of that has been as a lot of that for the listener has been talked about in yeah. the Noise Creators podcast. So like go dive in because it's a crazy story. What I want to talk to or what I want to talk about though is you've pretty much carved out a lane of success as an artist manager. You have your company, yep. you have your artists and like you really have that dialed. What I find extremely interesting mm -hmm. is you could pretty much put your feet up and chill in that lane. Like you're out in Nashville, you have an totally. office, like you're good. Yeah. You did something last year that is such an undertaking. Yeah. And that is Sad Summer, yep. Sad Summer Festival. As I talk to you and as I get to know you, I don't really think that it is anything about the money and it's anything it, about the We back. didn't make it. I didn't make any, so yeah, it wasn't, yeah. Right? Like there's, it's just, to me, it represents more than a festival. It, rep it represents like adding to a culture, a community, yes. whatever. I think, I just want to hear your take on that and like, he, like, tell me like how that came to exist and like, that's just special to me, right? Yeah. There's something more than just a festival there. You know, like we both respect Kevin Lyman totally. so much. Yep. Everything Warped Toward It is so important. And this isn't like a, this isn't to steal Warped Toward no. at all. Nope. So tell me about this chapter because I'm so fascinated by yeah. it. Yeah. The, the idea came about the February before the last Warped Tour. We yeah. knew the Warped Tour was going away. And myself and Tim Kirch, I manage Mayday Parade. He manages the main. And then our other partner, Mike Marquis, who's a booking agent at Paradigm, who does both of those bands. He does All Time Low. He does Dashboard Confessional. He works on Taking Back Sunday. We're all very much involved in this scene of music. Mm -hmm. And those are the two other guys that I truly respect the most in this genre of just very entrepreneurial, very smart, very savvy, and could come up with something that I felt like we could all work on. Tim brought the idea up of like, what if we just did our own festival next summer? Yeah. And Tim had had that experience because he does the 8123 festival in Phoenix. Oh. Um, and so he's like, we've, we've had one good year of that. Maybe we could do something together. And we just quietly talked to bands throughout warp tour. And just like in general, like if we did this next year, would you guys possibly be in? And some people were skeptical about it. I was nervous as hell about it. Tim was too. <laughs> Mike had the utmost confidence in this. I think he's really the, he's the pinpoint of why it happened, but we all just wanted to make sure if we did it, we did it in a way that was credible, respectable, yeah. treated the fans first and the bands felt good about it and didn't feel like a copycat of warp tour didn't feel like a bad idea, didn't look poorly ran. So it was a huge undertaking and it was a huge risk. And it was something that none of us really had proper festival experience. Yeah. Um, Mike had been a partner in Bamboozle. Tim had, had the 8123 festival. We've all worked on bigger level tours than this. Yeah. But something that we would be the producers behind, we would be building from scratch. All of our reputations would be on the line. Yeah. It was a very huge risk. 
but it felt like it needed to happen. It felt like if we didn't do it, somebody else was going to do it without as much care and thought put into it. Right. And it, and it just felt like something we all had to try. And if we failed on it, we'd never do it again. We made it, we made a promise that we would not even commit to thinking about another year until the absolute last show ended. Yeah. And then we would entertain it. Yeah. And we kept true to that. Um, but it was, it was just, it's more, it's more work than I've ever done on any project whatsoever. A ton of stress, but also it was so rewarding. Like it was 14 months put into this thing and then for it to happen and be gone in three weeks, but to be going to so many of these shows and seeing how kids were reacting, all the positivity on social media, which never happens. Um, but also knowing that like we took all the things we didn't like about festivals and we tried to make ours fit within that mold so that the bands felt a sense of ownership because it was the first year. And if they were not into it, if they were not all in, it wouldn't work to where kids felt safe and supported and it was inclusive and thoughtful. Yeah. Um, and to where the bands won and the experiences outdoors felt like this is cool. This is not as big as Warp Tour was. It's more concise. We can watch our favorite bands or go take selfies or have whatever meal we want to have that fits our dietary restrictions. There's free water everywhere. There's sunscreen. Like people are really thinking of us. And I think for a lot of kids that don't really have a place that feel like loners, it became a place where they felt like this can be my favorite day ever where I don't have to worry about anything else in my life. And to see kids react that way and whether they were crying or just having the time of their life, there was something about that that said, we may have not have known what we were doing when we started this thing. And there's a lot of things we have to fix about it, but that's one thing that we did right. Yeah. And we didn't do it just because the three of us knew exactly what we were doing or great at this is because everybody came together and created a culture. Right. And it was such a special moment that it made it obvious we should do it again. And it, it was just a very, it's the thing that I'm probably the, of everything that I've done in my career. And I've had bands that have sold millions of records and, sold out arenas. This was a very special thing because this is a thing that did not have to exist. This was not a normal business practice. This was an idea birthed solely with the intention of doing something right. Yeah. And doing it with the right people. Like I can't imagine doing anything like this without Tim's creative genius on the marketing side. Mike's very thoughtful consideration to both the finances of the tour, but also playing the tour in the right markets with the right promoters marketing it correctly, yeah. building it correctly, us coming up with the aesthetic and the lineup. We had great bands on it that were all growing and buzzing. Well, okay, here's my thing is because again, anybody listening to this, like it maybe you don't know that whole side of like totally. the warp tour world and that culture that that created, but it's such a risk. Like you said something earlier where it's about that like day, right? Where you could go and have your best day ever. And that was me growing up going to warp tour. Totally. And that's what mattered. Like that day, like I would always say it was better than Christmas. Yep. What it represents, like I know it on the smallest level of just like the version three tours that I put together. And mm -hmm. like that's seven days and it's totally. like in clubs and like you've done that a billion times. Totally. So to take, uh, I just gather from you that it is so much more about the culture and the community because like, we respect what Kevin Lyman did with Warp Tour so, so, so much. It gave like the misfits a place to go. It built a community. And that 
music, like that genre isn't the most popular right now. Mm-mm. So to go and be like, all right, sick, like let's make a festival right after Warp Tour and like do that is a very risky thing. Totally. And I think we saw some other festivals try it maybe for the wrong reasons. Like, I don't know. I wasn't mm-hmm. deep in it, but it's like, I very much just feel that there is a sense of responsibility to keep a community going. Like, we have they're, to. They're like, what do these bands do? Like these kids have these bands that anybody, any fan has these bands that it means so much to them. And Warp, Warp Tour represented that. That goes away. What happens to those summers? Like there is this community and mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like you came at it from a much more genuine place of not this is a paycheck, but let's keep that culture that we loved so much going. Let's cut the fat of the mm-hmm. sides that didn't work or the people that were less than rad and let's try to bring together the best parts of that. Yeah. I think the emo, the emo and pop punk community has always been a lifestyle. Yeah. It's a lifestyle brand. It's aside from fallout boy and paramore and a couple of and blink that have had hits on the radio. It's not about that. So it's about creating a culture of people that continue to come to see these shows that find, that find a voice in their teenage years to say like, I identify with that. Yeah. This person knows what I'm going through. I'm not alone in this. Yeah. And give them a place where they can have a great time and be in their own subculture. Yeah. And without Warp Tour was so vital to that because it provided a much larger platform than all these bands that were playing clubs were going to get. Yeah. Sad Summer is a much smaller compartmentalized version of that. But our hope is there it takes away the negativity. It takes away any kind of bad experience. And instead, it just says, like, these bands are important. And we want to make sure everyone knows that they are important on a bigger level and their message is important and the kids coming to see them are important. And yeah. we want to make sure that this genre of music stays around for long after we are. And you're right. It's not about making money. First year, we didn't have any sponsors. We barely got through the tour by the skin of our teeth. We yeah. learned a lot of stuff. We made a lot of changes and transitions on the fly. Yeah. But when you go and do a show like that and something that did not exist the year before comes out and exists and there's energy behind it. It's a powerful thing. It was, it was more powerful than I even anticipated. And it took away all the jadedness that I sometimes get about music and said, I remember the last day of the tour after I was physically and mentally exhausted, barely had a voice. I went up to everyone on the tour. Everyone was backstage and said, thank you. I think we did a good thing this year. And, and that would not have happened had everybody else not worked together and made it bigger than all of us, bigger than our idea. The scene came together and a community built itself and said, this is going to be something we put our flag on right now. And it was really, really cool. So on the bigger than the festival itself, what I, I think there's a lesson here. And I Mm -hmm. think that there's something very inspiring to any level. I view you as very successful. You didn't have to do this. You've had your lane. We were talking before this started and for a well-established dude to take the amount of risks that you took and to honestly like own the L's and to like, you were telling me a story first day in Texas, there's Mm -hmm. no shade. You're watching kids just like sweating, dying, right? You instantly then call all the outdoor venues and you're like, we need shade, this and this and this. Like you quickly learned a lesson, right? The amount of things that you're telling me of like things that I would never expect you didn't expect 
you didn't have to go down this learning experience, like all of these things, but you did. Yeah. Where does that come from? You didn't have to do that. Like you're not like, you don't have anything to prove here. I don't. And it does. And I also think it's important to say like, it's nothing that makes you truly special. It's just, I, if there's something I feel needs to get done, there's a part of me that can't not jump into it. I literally can't like, I, this is what I love. Like I, I love, I love the direct correlation of working one-on-one with an artist and helping them figure out their vision and helping them dream beyond their dreams. I love that. The festival I love because it, it takes a completely different side of my brain. It allows me to be creative in a way that I cannot be creative as a manager. And it allows me to connect back with the youth of myself that got into music for the first time, but also the person in me that says like, I, we can do this better. And, and try to create something that's special in that way. I have always admired entrepreneurs that did something that was a little bit left. I've never liked the traditional person that gets in music for this reason. I always like the person that's a little bit different, a little bit sideways, and thinks a little bit outside the box. I'm fascinated by that person. Yeah. And for me, you know, 16 years into doing this, I have to continue to find ways that make me want to get up in the morning and get engaged with this and work super late at night and be on call all the time. Yeah. And the festival was an outlet for me to do that. In addition to the work that I'm proud of as a manager and other things that I hopefully will dream up over time or dream up with partners allows that to be the case. The festival is like the management company is something that is solely mine. It's solely mine and my staffs that we have built together over the duration of my career. Every client has led to another client has led to another client and that's my resume. It's the resume that I don't have. It's there. The festival is something that I that I was able to dream up with friends. Mm. And we were able to do it together, not as individuals, but together. We were able to do something and to see people latch onto that was inspiring. And I'm constantly looking for things that inspire me to do more, to get out of ruts, to keep trying to think bigger. And it's if you don't take those risks, you become that bitter, jaded person that says, well, this happened because of this. I hate those people. I always want to be around the person that says like, we tried this, maybe we lost this time. But every time you lose, you learn something from it. And anything that's successful that's been in my life has come from 10 things before it that didn't work out. Every band that's ever sold a ton of records or sold a bunch of tickets came from this other band that I fought my ass off for for three years that could barely get out of clubs and didn't sell but 10,000 records. And I felt like I lost for them. The festival and everything I'm doing now is a culmination of everyone that has believed in me, whether it's a band that taught me something, a mentor that taught me something, a kid that interned for me that was smarter than I was in the moment. The festival and my management company and just the way I look at opportunity in life comes from all those people and saying like, we all did this together. This has been a journey. This has been a career. Yeah. And that's what keeps me going, even if the days are rough or even if I feel like I'd just be better off to pick up five more bands and do the same thing and not have to worry about like I could do that. But then I'm just like any other hack that manages bands. I love that. Yeah. So here's a question. Yeah. You survived so (laughs) far. You survived. (laughs) Do you think because I think that the common like the relatable thing that anybody could apply to their life is like, that's terrifying. That's such a big undertaking. You don't know what you're doing, but you jumped in and you you did it right. You took it on. You did it. I think everybody has a that in their life that they could 
buck up and be like, all right, here we go. I have a feeling and they might succeed. They might fail. How do you feel after that? Do you feel like you have another, like a sense of confidence past what you had before in your career? Like what's the feeling after sad summer ended and like you didn't go broke, like it, you did it. I, I, uh, that's a tough one because I think there is this sense of confidence that comes from like, I feel more confident going into year two that I know what to expect than I did in the year that I did not know that, but there's still the same self doubts that everyone has. Like I'm a human being just like everybody else is. And I, I struggle with anxiety and self doubt just as much as anyone else would. And any challenge that I go up against, I overthink and, and just think the worst before it gets there. And then it happens. My mom has a great thing. Like before the festival happened, I was stressed out like a lunatic. And she was like, I don't know why you always get like this. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, every time you do anything that actually means something to you, you, you automatically assume the worst will happen. I was like, yeah, cause I prepare myself for the worst. Cause I can figure it out after that. She's like, but it always ends up better than you think. And afterwards you act like it wasn't a big deal at all. And I was like, yeah, that that's, that's part of it. You know, like that's exactly, I have, if I don't get that fixated on it and that obsessed with it, I won't believe that it'll get better than that. And I'm able to surround myself with people that can make it bigger than I ever dream anything to be. So that's, that's just my process. So am I excited about year two? Hell yeah. Do I think it's going to be bigger than the first year? Yeah. Do I think it's going to be even harder and challenge me and probably knock me out after it's over with? Yep, sure do. But that's what's fun about this. There are no rules that Anything in life that like stresses you out so much that you don't feel like you can do it, that's the first thing you should do. Like you've got to jump right into that immediately because that's your gut saying you can do this. Dude, that is so powerful. And like that's everything you just said there, I deal with so much. Like that self-doubt, that anxiety. And like I was kind of like low-key hoping you'd be like... Dude, I took it on and uh, yeah, I'm the shit. I'm on top I, I, of the I am world. not Tom Cruise. I am not into that mode. I'm not Dude. the guy that knows that stuff. I, but that's also why it works. Like that's why I'm different than somebody that's like a big shot manager that's like, I'm going to make you a star, kid. Like the types of people that buy into me and the types of people I buy into are more real and go through the same types of struggles. And I think that's why when the wins happen, they feel good, but they don't feel unsurmountable that like I couldn't do it again. Yeah. And... I always have to dream bigger. I always have to challenge myself because I just saw too many people early in my career that got comfortable. And when they got comfortable, they eventually started losing clients. They got out of the business and they also just like found different things. Like, it's just like me, like going into journalism. Had I really put my focus into journalism early on, I would have been the best version of that, that I could have, whether I liked it or not, but it was not my ultimate passion. Yeah. This is something that like, I think about on weekends. I think about on vacations. I think about at night and wake up at four in the morning and text myself something. It's something that gives me something that nothing else in my life has ever given me. Yeah. And it's all I want to do. It's obsessive. It's obnoxious, but it's it's all I want to do. And when I find other people that want to do it with me and that I think I can help, it's an addiction. Yeah. Whether that's a kid that's interning for me or some young kid that's like, I got a couple of songs that are okay. And I'm like, these songs are amazing. Like I love to help other people figure out strategy and system in their life to build a structure and a business and a financial institution around just what they like. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, you said something there, like that fear, right? Like you have that fear. And I was like hoping, I was like, oh, maybe it goes away. But I feel like that drives you, right? Like when you can be self-aware of it and say like, damn, I'm terrified right now. And I have all this anxiety and I don't know if I can do it. Like the way you just put that of just like, that's your sign. And like, I don't know when you can positively use that, like you're proof that you can use that. Right. Yeah. Cause you didn't run away from it. And, and I, now it, you're it, so fulfilled. It gets messy too. I think that's the thing. Like, <laughs> I don't want to make this sound like all Ted talk either. Yeah. Like it all works out. <laughs> like there are moments where I'm, I'm not a great person to be around and I, and, and people around me know like to back off or like, but people also know how to push through with me on that stuff. And they know when I'm getting worked up for no good reason and I think they know the sincerity of it. I think yeah. that's the, the reason that it gets so all encompassing for me and creates this self doubt is I just want to do a good job and I don't want to let anybody down. And I want everybody to feel like they're getting the most of me because yeah. I think if they can get the most of me, I provided some value that's and it. I would hate to make anyone feel like they didn't get the most out of me when they're entrusting me with their career, their experience, their moment. That's great. That's, I love it. And that's the perfect transition of let's talk about some advice and some things for those listening who want to, like who do want to be the next generation, be it an artist, be it industry, a manager, anything like that. Mm -hmm. I I really want to get as much value out of you as possible and as much advice because I feel like you've really been there and you've done it. So it's like, I guess I'll start. I want to, I want to hear your take on both sides of this. Yep. But let's start as the artist. Yep. You're an artist. You fully believe in yourself. Mm -hmm. You have the songs. You have whatever it is. But you're at a spot where you don't have a manager. Like you're looking for, I don't don't want (laughs) to force you to sweet brag, but like you're looking for a Josh Terry of a manager, Mm -hmm. right? You're looking for somebody who cares, who has that same spark, but you're not getting noticed. Mm -hmm. Where does somebody start? You stop looking for a manager. That's the place you start at. The second that you start becoming more obsessed with the industry than you do your own talent and your own creative, you've lost it. You need you need to realize as the artist that you have something to provide, that your voice and your message is important. And if you don't feel like you can walk into the room and you're the most important person in that room, then you are not an artist. You are just another musician making music that will not connect. You become an artist by knowing that you have touched on something, something that's so vulnerable to you, but also will connect with somebody else. When you know that, then you become something that somebody else can make a business out of and work for and provide a living for themselves. And when you've done that, you create an infrastructure where you can employ the best people that understand what your vision are, can hear you, can support you, and can get you. And that's when you become successful. And that's when doors come unlocked. The biggest problem that most artists come up with is they try to fast track through stuff. They try to look through shortcuts. If I get a manager, I won't have to book these shows. If I, if I get a publicist, they're going to get me on all these things before I have an audience. They don't focus on their live show. They don't focus on the songs getting better. They don't focus on collaborating because by doing that, it allows them to focus solely on the ego and not on the work. And I think when you meet with any manager or literally anyone on your team, your guitar tech, the publicist, the person that cleans your toilet, it needs to be someone that you look at and say, this is what I want. This is what I believe I am. And I'm self-aware enough to know these are the things that I want versus the things that I need. 
but this person, I get a good vibe when I talk to them. Not that they're the person that's going to have the most power and the most stroke and is going to get me the most things. You're going to fail if you do that. You're going to fail if you do that. But if you find the person that just like says like, I'm honest, this is where I think we can get and you both align with that, that's your person. Do you want me to take this mic off the stand so you can <laughs> drop it? Because that was the hardest fucking answer yeah. I've ever heard. Yeah. That was, oh my God, that was great. Yeah. All right. Well, then tell me on the other side if, God, that was so good. Like, <laughs> actually, like, dude, <laughs> you got me with that one. Well, that, here's the thing. The thing with that is <laughs> that's a thing that if I'm doing conferences or colleges, I'll speak to art, artists a lot of time. And I get it. Like, you're trying to make a dream come true and there's financial stuff that you have to attach to it so you can quit your job and pursue this full time. But man, like people like me are looking for artists. We don't need to get cold called and get an EPK or get a press. I don't need all that stuff. I need to see something in the eye of that kid that says, if I walked over to him right now and grabbed their guitar and threw it against the wall and said, you can never do this crap again. Then they go, oh, and they crumble. Because all have. that's all they have. And it's their only way to connect. And it's the way that they find importance in their life. If I find a kid like that and I can see some kind of path in my head to get them there, it will drive me crazy if they don't go with me. I will, and, and it's not a selling way. I will literally tell them, take if you don't think I'm the guy, take it to someone else. Use any of these ideas because they're going to work. But find the person that works for you because it's like being in a relationship. And I hate, I hate this culture of artists that we sometimes have created now where these kids put one song up on a DSP platform, think everything's going to happen for them. And then four months later, oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to become a gamer now. Or I'm a, like, it's this too short mindset of like, everything has to happen for me now. And I've got to have this instant gratification. And I understand that's the world we live in, but it's so short sighted because most artists take years and years to develop. And it's those hardships and that grind and that understanding of what is truly you that is so hard to get to. But when you get to that place, you can do anything. And that's the stupidity of this is like people try to fast track through it, but they don't understand that that's the actual purpose is the journey to get to that place is when you really start making money, you really start making a difference and you really matter to people. And that's when you can do this for as long as you want to. That like... I I might have to take that off. So you can drop that off. That's, that's <laughs> incredible, dude. That's amazing. Thank you. Like you just said that so well. And I feel like that'll help so many people. Like that needs to be said. Yeah. Like, like really. And like, I need to hear it. Right. Everybody yeah. needs to hear it. Like you get so caught in those moments where you yep. just, you have blinders of, I want this or, you know, why isn't it happening for me? And that perspective of just like understanding that patience and just like being that kid that needs it. And but like, that's, that's the thing. When you get in that mindset of like, why isn't this happening to me? I saw my friend that didn't work as hard. You are comparing. And comparing is the bacteria of any career. It's the thing that just will grow and create a fungus. And it'll make you bitter and it'll make you resentful. And what it really is, is a distraction. Yeah. It's a, such a distraction from what is truly good about you that's going to make somebody else say, I want, I want that kid to work for me. Yeah. I want to I work with that kid right there and teach them to be a manager that when I retire, I can say, look at where that kid went. I'm proud of that kid because I took a chance on that kid when nobody else did. Yeah. And 
to me, whether you're a professional, whether you're an artist, whether you're still figuring out what it is, those are the things that matter because really those are the likable traits that make you like anybody, that make you want to be around anyone, whether it's a friend, a relationship, a coworker, or a client manager situation. Um, you want to be around people that provide something in your life that you may or may not be able to do, but together you can do so much more. And I just hate that people get so in their head about stuff. And I get it. I was 20 at one point too. And I thought I wanted to take over the world and time didn't move fast enough for me. And now at 37, I can look back and be like, dude, slow the hell down, do what you're doing, but stop getting so focused on the things that literally will do nothing for your career because the things you're doing right now are the things that matter. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> let's flip it and let's talk about the kids that want to be on the industry side. Yeah. What is good advice to those who have more of an interest in not so much being an artist or the creative side, but want to be a part of that magic and want to help. And, you know, they feel like they relate more to the side that you and I started at. Mm -hmm. Where's the good spot for people like that to start? Intern, 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 work for anyone for free. Yeah. Don't care about the money. Yeah. Learn. Yeah, I think I said earlier, like one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was like, shut up and listen, shut up and listen. Because if you put yourself in situations where you truly want nothing more than to do this, you can't do it by being the egotistical kid at 22 that thinks they know everything because any 40 year old is going to be like idiot, you know? So you need to kind of like surround and also surround yourself with the type of people that you want to be like one day. I think one of the biggest things that people do wrong in the music industry early in their career is they take whatever job they can get. Whatever minimum wage job I can get is going to get me in the door. I'll be a receptionist somewhere. One of the things that I'm the most proud of in my career, and again, I'm non-traditional in this, I never was on somebody's desk as an assistant. When I was in college, I realized no one was going to hire me at any of these places I worked at because none of them made enough money. So in order for me to have any kind of career and not have wasted four years of my life, I had to start a business and it wasn't a great business. It was a business that lost money but it was a business that allowed me to work with local and regional bands I liked, book them, manage them. And so that when that went, ran its course, another door opened. And every time a situation went poorly that I thought, oh man, I've screwed this up. My entire career is over with. Whether it was instantly or soon after, another door that was better for me happened. When the bands got dropped from their label, I got the offer to go on the road. When Howie went to rehab, another band kept me out for a little bit longer. When that band retired, Motion City called me and I was out with them. Yeah. When I was tired of touring and I really wanted to get back to the management job, Aware randomly called me and said, hey, would you like to get off the road? We need a young guy here. I came into the company at the time where they were signing the biggest bands and becoming the biggest boutique management company in the world and one of the biggest indie labels in the world. I was there for nine years. I came from like young manager, day-to-day, -day, signing some of my own stuff, to some of it working, yeah. to growing up the ladder, to being the VP of the company. And then by the time I was like, you know what? Like, I've, I've been here. This is such an important part of my story. I don't want to ruin it. But man, I, I want to do something of my own now that I have resources. And taking that instinct to do it, it was scary. It was challenging, but I did it. 
And I think there's a lot of value in just like trying. I knew that I was a hireable person. Yeah. If I went in and I lost all the money I had in my bank account, which was not a lot at the moment, <laughs> um, I knew that I could probably get hired at another management firm or do something else. I could flip cheeseburgers if I needed to, to get by. Yeah. But that wasn't going to happen because I didn't have a plan B. And so much of the music business now becomes these entry level kids that like, if this doesn't work out in five years, or if I'm not making the money I need to make two in five years, or if they're not putting me in this position, all these like things that they, they're going to do it. If, if they could erase that crap from their brain and just say like, I'm going to do this because this is what I want to do. Yeah. And I'll figure it out along the way. Yeah. You'd find a lot more people that are more satisfied with what they're doing, passionate about what they're doing, and also focused on the other. They're focused on the client. They're focused on the people that are hiring them instead of making it all about themselves. Yeah. You'd have a healthier music industry. And also you'd have people that would actually be pursuing what they want instead of the segue that gets them here, that gets them here to try to build a resume. Because the thing I've learned about the music business is no matter how good your resume looks, and if you're like, I interned at CAA, and then I went to William Morris, and then I went to Red Light, and then I went to Vector, and then I worked at Warner Music, that's all great. But if nobody thinks you're worth a cuss, you're not going to get anywhere here. Yeah. But if you, have, if you have this genuine, authentic side of you that says, like, I'm going to do everything I can because this is where I want to be one day, and you surround yourself with the people that inspire you, you get there so much quicker, and you come out so much less bitter. That's... All right. That's again, <laughs> incredible. Yeah. Um, another thing that I like to ask just because, you know, like here you are, like you've done so much, you've done yeah. it. And like, I just feel you already touched on so many things that are so relatable to me, man. And I, I just, I feel it. Right. And like all those times of self doubt, the uncertainty. And it's like, I'm so glad you touched on all of that, but to make it more relatable on your own personal level, knowing what you know now and the, the insight that you have, if you could go back to a Josh at any time in your life where you really did feel unsure of something or a little bit lost mm -hmm. or whatever, where, where would you go back to and what would you tell yourself knowing what you know now? Yeah. So, so there's two points to this. Sure. One's the earlier stage of my career and one's right before I left to start the business. Cool. When I was first getting started, I was so driven to do this, but I was so, they're the same story. I, I was so worried that if it didn't happen fast enough, someone else was going to take it away from me and I could never get it back. And I would live for the rest of my life in this like failure mentality of yeah. I failed and like, Dude, that I regret this and it sucks. And, yeah. and so because of that, I just dove deep into it. And there was a moment early in, in my career where I just started becoming really negative yeah. to where one of the guys that I do consider a mentor, his name's Doug LaFrac. He managed motion city. Um, Doug's such a genuine, credible guy. And, and he taught, he, he pulled me aside one day. He's like, you're the most negative 24 year old I've ever met in my life. And I didn't see it. I was just like, no, nah, just like I'm, I'm working really hard. And like some of these things frustrate me. And he's like, listen, there's an importance about having a frustration as a professional, but there's also something you have to remember as well. To be a professional, you need to take that frustration and figure out a plan to get away from it. But if you just want to sit here and bitch and gripe, there's a lot of people that got a lot more work to do than listen to you bitch and gripe about something you're not willing to change. I wish I would have known that before Doug had to say that to me. Uh -huh. But at the same point, I'm glad I didn't because he needed to be that honest with me so that in the future when I was like, oh, this is really tough, 
I didn't complain about how tough it was because I had to look at the self and be like, look at all these opportunities you get and you're a little ungrateful. Yeah, I, I need to do that. Um, so that's one point. But a lot of that's fear-based. Yeah. So much of your life, so much of the things you don't do in life yeah. are because you're scared. Dude, too They're, real. It's too you're real. just you're scared that it's all gonna go away. You're gonna look like a failure in front of yeah. friends. And the truth is, no one's watching. No matter how successful you get, everybody's preoccupied in their own thing. And neither of us is scooter brawn, bro. So nobody's really worried that much about what me and you are doing. But I, I can take it back to when I was like, the second part is when I was getting ready to leave my old company for a year before I knew I was going to leave. I stressed out about this. I, the company was changing. The managers that I mentioned earlier were all going to different, going to red light or they're going to live nation or they were just getting out of the business. And it felt like this place that I thought I was going to be till I was 60 years old. Wasn't going to be anymore. Yeah. And I worried about this because I was very loyal the, my boss had given me all of his resources, had opened his book and had been very gracious to me. And it was like, this was my, this was my dream job. What I didn't realize then was like, this was the segue to my dream job. Yeah. He was giving me the momentum to be able to have a career and have learned it at a big level because my real dream was to do it myself, was mm -hmm. to have my own business, create my own culture, pick the people that I wanted to come up with me and instill in them a, a courage to be able to do this when other people couldn't do it. He had given me all that. So I wasted a year of my life worrying about how I was going to tell him so much so that when I was going to quit, I was going to quit that day so that it wouldn't impact him. And I called him and I said, Hey, Greg, I think it's time for me to leave. I'm really worried about this. I don't want you to think I'm just going to take my book of business and go to a bigger firm and screw you over. I don't want to do any of that stuff, but I'll resign today and start something new and you won't have to pay me through this stuff. And he's like, slow down. He's like, first off, do you have a name for your company yet? I haven't thought about that. Okay. Okay. Idiot. <laughs> he's like, calm down a little bit. Don't leave yet. I'm going to get out of my deal at Republic, help me to get that back. We have an entire Matt Carney record that we need to put out and release. Stay with me on that. Work for another year here. Save up money. I'll restructure your deal so you can save a lot of money. Figure out how you're going to name it. Talk to these people about accounting, legal. He's like, I'm going to get, he's, he basically gave me the infrastructure of how to properly set up a business instead of rationally, irrationally set up a business. So if you had just quit. If I would have just quit, this wouldn't have been a success. If I would have just quit, I would have set on a year of no income because also yeah. the other thing that my stupid self did not think about was all my vans are off cycle. Wow. So, and if he, you had just said something to him, like I get it, that year of like you thinking about it, but you didn't say anything. I didn't say it. And this was a guy that was always in my corner. And so we created a scenario where I would leave right before Mayday Parade's record cycle started, which is when all the revenue for them would start. And so I left started my business and everything has every year has worked out better than the last. And we've added clients, we've lost clients, things change, but I was so hyper worried that I would screw somebody over that after it happened, I called that other guy, Jason Rio, that I mentioned that was a big mentor for me. And I said, man, I don't know why I put, he's like, he's like, what did you think was going to happen? He's like, I was like, well, I thought I was going to be like screwing this guy over and be a bad person. He's like, JT, I think you sometimes think you're a worse person than you are. 
you are going to do it the right way regardless. And he knew that. And he probably saw this before you saw it. And be glad that it's working out this way. This will probably be the last situation ever in a management situation where you're not having to fight for clients to go with you and not have to pay somebody for it. He's like, but you've, you've, you have so many, you have a decade's worth of institutional knowledge and doing right by people. What makes you think on something you're overthink you're going to actually do somebody wrong? You're going to do yourself wrong before you do them wrong. And in that moment, I couldn't see it because I was so blinded by the fear of letting this person down who was a mentor to me, who had taught me the business and who had built something that I wanted, not thinking that he realized I wanted to do something similar to him. And as an entrepreneur, he respected that. And because of that, our relationship is so much better. So I think in both those moments, the thing I would have told myself was slow down. It doesn't all have to happen now. Also, your clients aren't going to leave you if you go somewhere else because your clients are with you. Yeah. And trust that and trust the relationship you've built. But also trust the people around you that have invested in you because they've invested in you because of you. And the same way now that I have to, if I was looking at a kid that looked just like me or this intern, like I'm investing in them. My hope is for them to do more stuff than I could ever do in my own career. Yeah. Because in a way, that's exactly like my internship program is called an apprenticeship program because I think it's more involved than an internship program. I'm teaching them a craft and a trade and a skill yeah. that if they do it right and they handle themselves professionally and they make the most of their opportunities, they can always make money for as long as they want to in that way, in the same way that everyone before me that took a chance on me selflessly gave of themselves to do that to me. And so there's no advice I can give myself other than just do it the way you're going to do it, but don't stress out so much. And it's not, no one's going to be able to take it away from you because you want it more than they do. That's absolutely massive. Last question. Mm-hmm. You had an artist that wanted to transport a home item like a lamp or something of that sort <laughs> internationally. Internationally. I feel like I have a story about this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So for the listener, our mutual friend, Johnny Minardi, I was talking to him and I was like, Josh is going to come on the show. And I was like, anything that I'm missing here that I should ask him? And he's like, ask him about a lamp. <laughs> yeah. Um, my brain did not know how to handle this conversation. Um, I, I think I've heard most anything that one person can hear in their entire career. Somebody has said something to me that didn't make sense. And I've always been able to like rationalize it and figure out a way to do it. Me and Johnny, <laughs> me and Johnny managed William Beckett for a while. Yeah. He was on Equal Vision. It's how mine and Johnny's relationship with Equal Vision started. If you listen to Johnny's podcast on here, he talks about his Equal Vision chapter. It's so, so funny because I was at Equal Vision when we had William Beckett. Totally. So. Yeah. Um, and William's a great guy. William's a, a very talented person. I enjoyed our time together. But he was he had got he had got an offer to go to Japan. Uh-huh. And he had just finished like a run of like headline dates and stuff like that where he had brought these like lamps on stage to ambiance this to the stage. And Johnny, Johnny was co-managing it with me. And so Johnny dealt with a lot of the day-to-day stuff where I would deal with the touring stuff and the negotiating of the bigger deals. But Johnny called me and he's like, you're going to have to talk to William because he's leaving for Japan tomorrow. And he just called me and he doesn't know how to pack the lamps. I was like, come again, come again, like pack the lamps. He's like, 
Yeah, he wants to bring those lamps with the light bulbs on them to Japan for the show. I was like, he can't do that. I was mm. like, I was like, he, he can't do that. Like lamps are going to break and he's not going to be able to go into a foreign country with actual lamps in a bag that they're not going to take seize at customs. He's like, you're going to have to talk to him about it. And I remember calling William about this and, and William's super creative. So like, he was just like, I need these lamps for the show. And I was like, bro, there is no way those lamps are going. If you take those lamps, that means you can't take merchandise that we're going to sell. Like, and he couldn't rationalize it. <laughs> what did you do in his head? So we gave it a couple hours and we let William talk to his wife, his friends, other touring people. And we let all of them tell him that it was a bad idea. Did the lamps make it? The lamps did not go to Japan <laughs> because at the last minute, William called and said, you know, I've thought about this a little bit more and maybe the lamps aren't the right way to go. And I was like, I think that's a good idea. Incredible. Um, but yeah, me and Johnny, ha we've had so many jokes about those lamps over the years. It's just like, <laughs> it's like, I feel like I've heard some things that just made no logical sense, but the value placed on these lamps going to Tokyo, we should have just bought lamps bought in lamps. Tokyo. I thought that no was going to be. No one even thought that up. That, Me and Johnny both so failed as managers in that moment to say like, we will Venmo you $20 when you get to Tokyo, go to a lamp store, buy them and then throw the lamps in the trash or give them to a family that needs light. Lamps. Like we should have done that. But instead we were so fixated on like, I cannot believe this is going to be the hill we have to die on today. So, oh, yeah. my God. Incredible. <laughs> no, the actual last question is if anybody is listening and like I, I love the apprenticeship side of workshop and all mm -hmm. that, where do people find you if they're interested and want to dig a little deeper or get in touch? Yeah, our, our website is workshopmgmt.com. That's the social handle as well for everything. Um, we are on Music Row in Nashville. We take interns three semesters a year, spring, summer, and fall, usually two to three. We've taken them from all over. We've taken them also in Nashville. Um, but I'm a big believer in internships. I did a lot of them. I think it's how I learned the business. Um, it's, it's not an easy internship. There's a lot expected of you. Um, it's not one you coast through, but it's one that if I look back at like, I've had hundreds, literally hundreds of interns Damn. in 16 years of doing this. And one of the things I'm really proud of is of the hundreds of internship, the last count I had, 74% have gone on to work in the music industry in some fashion. Bro. And of the 26% that didn't, it's because they either found something else that they've achieved and been either entrepreneurs or they work at magazines or they've become professors. I've got a lawyer. I don't know how that kid became a lawyer, but I had a kid that was a lawyer. Um, or it's, it's the... 5% that weren't going to ever make it anyway. Yeah. And I think that's just as valuable about an internship is to realize, I think this is where I want to go, but it's not what I want to do. Save them um, some time. Like, yeah. Learn and, but quickly. like, I, I very much value the internship program because a, it helps us as a small business, keep our eyes on everything and make sure everything is buttoned up. Yeah. It's a very hands-on internship. You're not making copies and getting coffee for people. It's very much like you're involved in every artist's career. You get to know and you get to see what happens. Um, but we've had very good kids that have come through the doors and my staff does a really good job of working with them. And it's, it's been one way that I've been able to watch those kids grow. And now, like if I have a kid that's amazing, 
I can call wherever they want to go and say, you're an idiot if you don't hire this kid. That's amazing. And because none of them have really made me look poor, yeah. people trust that. And I'm, I'm not an easy person to like make happy in those sense. So like if yeah. there's a kid that's really good, people are going to trust that like if I've got minimum wage to pay to this kid or this kid, yeah, give it to JT's kid because that kid's probably legit if he thinks they're good, you know? And I think even bigger than your story, really, for anybody listening, it's like not everybody can intern in Nashville, mm -hmm. but I think that there are yous. If you look hard enough and totally. you do your research, I think that the yous of the world, like the mentors in each yeah. chapter exist. So it's, I mean, at least my two cents is if you're paying attention in the right places and you find somebody that aligns with what you really believe in, 100%. you can find those people to learn from. And totally. that's really important. Yeah. So it's, mm -hmm. it's crucial. And I think, like I said, there are people everywhere that do this and your story is going to be different than the next person's story, than the next person's story. It's just about creating the chapters that make you proud of the story at the end of it. That's huge. I, that's, <laughs> that's where we end it. That's cool. great. Dude, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, bud. Appreciate yeah. it. There you have it, my friend Josh Terry. Really hope you got a lot out of that one. I was so impressed by it. If you did, you can find him on social media. His handle is at Josh Terry MGMT. You know I'm Andrew underscore FTW on all socials. Let me know how you liked it. Again, leave some feedback, all that good stuff. I'll be back next week.